This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. With many millennials heading back into big cities, the expectation was that towns were going to boom again. Uh, But as that move has occurred, there has been uh, somewhat of a negative development, which has impacted many of the other financial brackets that reside in these cities and have resided there for decades. Author Richard Florida calls it the new urban crisis, which is the title of his book, which is out now. You may remember Richard for his prior work, The Rise of the Creative Class. And Richard joins us on the show right now. Richard, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you guys. Thank you, sir. Great to have you as well. Uh, so what was it that really happened? I mean, obviously the narrative was, as we laid out, people are coming back in the cities. There's going to be an economic boom. Uh, this is really going to flourish for these cities. But along the way, something kind of went askew, correct? Well, you know, I was listening to the show and, and listening to your segment on Ikea's restaurants, and it it struck me that it's all part of a piece. I know that's going to sound weird to folks listening in, but, you know, Ikea's out there in the big box store, and in, in the excerpts in most places, and people go in there for those lovely Swedish meatballs. Right. Uh, and, and right, right? It, but it's a, it's a schlep. You have to, you know, spend half your Sunday going out there. And, of course, your, your next entire week trying to assemble whatever you bought. But the, but the point is that now Ikea's saying, oh, the people who are buying our meatballs are, are living in the cities. We want to follow them. That's right. exactly what happened. Um, you know, when I wrote The Rise of the Creative Class, there wasn't much of an urban revival. Yeah, you could see, you could say Greenwich Village or Soho and, you know, maybe Society Hill in Philadelphia and Cambridge in Boston. But in most cities around the country, you still had dead zones in the city. So my book then was like saying, I lived in Pittsburgh at the time, taught at Carnegie Mellon. Look, wake up. People want to live in cities. They want to come back. This so-called creative class of knowledge workers and techies and artists. And, uh, you know, what happened, not because I wrote the book, but because this movement became so strong is uh, over the past decade and a half, we've seen an urban revival that has been off the chart, literally off the charts, that uh, has accelerated and now is occurring everywhere. Cleveland and Cincinnati. I'm in Columbus, Ohio today, where the downtown is in the adjacent neighborhoods have boomed, Indianapolis, where I'm going tomorrow. So so it's been a boom in this urban revival. But what's happened, of course, as the places that no one wanted to live and then artists wanted to live and then the gay community wanted to live and then a few young kids wanted to live. Now everybody wants to live. So it's been the educated and the affluent, right? Wealthy people, the top 10% of income earners. But also in addition, companies have said, you know, I want to be where the talent is. I'm going to move my headquarters by yeah. where the heck off in the excerpts back to the city. Tech companies like Google and startups are saying, I don't want to be in the suburban office park anymore. I'm coming back to the city. So What's happened is this has set off a very big, vigorous competition for urban space in which land is a scarce resources. And what's happened when you have a scarce resource is prices go up and people get priced out. And, and therefore, the urban revival has kind of had this, if you, call, if you want to call it that, a dark side or it's created new divides. Well, it, it's interesting you mentioned that because here in Philadelphia, one of the areas, uh, the Fishtown section, was an area, if you went back, I don't know, 10, 15 years, you could probably find places that were, you know, $50,000, $75,000. They weren't obviously very good properties. But now, in this last decade, the building that has gone on there, a lot of the, the new uh, homes that are there or townhomes that are there are all upwards of $400,000. And, and it's, it's, in, it's just crazy crazy to see what has happened over the last decade here, but also in in several other cities as well. So 
So I was, I was in Philadelphia last week, as, as luck would have it, and it was a beautiful night. And I was staying downtown, and I walked over to Vernick Food and Drink. Yeah. The first thing I noticed in Vernick Food and Drink is there were many young people. Yep. I do not see as many young people in, in restaurants in New York anymore. So I said to the, the bartender, why are there so many young people here? And he said, well, it's affordable, but it's getting less affordable. And believe it or not, the example of Fishtown comes up. And, and exactly as you said, your exact example, and I said, well, Philadelphia is now – it actually is having a fairly significant. It's it's one of I think it's in the top ten on my new urban crisis ranks. But at four hundred thousand, you still have room to address it. In Toronto, where I live part of the year, this is an astounding statistic for especially for Americans. The median price of a detached home is one point seven million. I I wow. stutter to say those words. Uh, so in this case, effectively, young people have been priced out. Now, right. don't get me wrong. What's happened in Fishtown, you know, pay, pay attention and be aware. But I think a city like Philadelphia uh, can now address it, whereas I think cities like Toronto or Washington or Boston or New York or L.A., it's almost become so extreme that, that no young person – The only you know, I asked my students this, my students are MBAs. I said, guys, how do you afford a house in Toronto? And they giggled a little, and they said, yeah, the bank of mom and dad. <laughs> Isn't that tragic, you know, where a young person's future not only depends on the family they grew up in, but then to put them in the appropriate local labor market, mom and dad have to buy them a home. So so I think Philadelphia is, is at the cusp, but you still have, Philadelphia, fortunately, is a great city that has time on its side to address it. And not all of this is kind of the 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 build back from the recession. I mean, a, a lot of this was happening pre-recession and obviously there was a dip down and, and it's come back a little bit, but this was kind of set in stone several years ago and, and this trend has just continued. Now in, in Toronto or here in Philadelphia, or some of the other cities that you're seeing, is there a topping point on the real estate part of this where, you know, a lot of these properties that have uh, have significantly increased over the last decade, are they hitting the high end at this point? I, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. But but I can certainly say that that it appears that the market for real estate in many of these places has become global. So it's no longer a local real estate market. So the people buying property in Manhattan or Miami or Los Angeles or Toronto are not necessarily people who live in those cities. So uh, the other competitors for real estate are companies and tech companies and tech firms who want to be near the city core. So I, I don't know. Right. Um, what, what, what appears to be happening, I think, is that we just have to figure out a way to build more. Uh, we have to figure a way to add more housing. And, uh, you know, this is, this is kind of percolating through those markets. So um, I don't know. It, it, but the other thing is, of course, you know, you're still seeing tremendous growth in the suburbs. And what's happening is it, it appears to be that just more affluent people, it's, it's not like the middle, the middle class and lower income people are being pushed out of cities where it's really the top 10 percent of income earners. And in a way, this sounds crazy, but because these wealthier people want bigger units, they're, they're taking a townhouse that used to house three or four families and turning it into a single family. Yeah. They're, they're combining two or three or four one-bedroom condos into their spread. So in a way, the, the urban revival, instead of creating more housing, is actually the individual is using more space. In a bizarre way, we're living a more suburban lifestyle. You know what I'm saying? Bigger, oh, yeah. Bigger in, in the urban areas. So I don't know. I, I certainly think in the main, we, we may be reaching a tipping point. But in certain of these markets, they may be quite unique and have quite unique characteristics that they don't. They don't equilibrate. But because of this, it, you t lay out the fact that there is this separation and, and it continues to grow between the haves and the have-nots in a lot of these cities. 
uh, and it, it plays out in a variety of different factors, whether that be socially or economically, you know, on a variety of different fronts. Well, I think, you know, taking Philadelphia as our example, it used to be, right? right? Philadelphia was the place that, that literally the former administration bombed like a neighborhood. Yeah. Like, it's just insane. Yeah. It was it was poor. It was burnt out. It was like my home, not quite as bad as my hometown of Newark, New Jersey, but but, you know, it was dysfunctional, and the, the business and the middle class moved to the suburbs. So you had poverty in the city and wealth in the suburbs. What's happened now, of course, is you, you have more affluent people moving back to the city, but, but it's interesting. You have these areas of concentrated wealth in the city juxtaposed with areas of concentrated poverty and disadvantage. But poverty has shifted to the suburbs, so you have now these spans of poverty in the suburbs, but still the most affluent places in our metro areas are in the suburbs. So... It's not like we have a city-suburb divide anymore. We have these areas of concentrated advantage across the city and suburb and areas of concentrated disadvantage. The middle has fallen out. You know, one of the big points of the book is that, you know, the middle class and the middle class neighborhoods, which were kind of the heart and soul of the American dream, have fallen by the wayside. Sixty-six percent of Americans lived in middle class neighborhoods in 1970, now less than 40 percent of us do. The, the result of that has been this incredible socioeconomic and geographic divide and, of course, the backlash, this incredible backlash that produced the, the reaction that put Donald Trump in office. And that really is not so much a class backlash, but it really is an urban-rural, urban-suburban divide. And, and people who are being pushed outside looking and going, you know, I, I, I want in. I want, I'm, I want a better life. I want a yeah. middle-class neighborhood back. And, and how do I get it? That's the way I get it. And, and part of, of what this is uh, has causing is something you call a crisis of success. Uh, and, and delve into that a little bit more because, I mean, it, as you say, we see it here in Philadelphia. I mean, obviously you can go to pretty much any big city right now and you can see a version uh, of this uh, playing out. I, I would I would venture guess that you will see this uh, basically play out in Detroit in a few years as that city's trying to come back. It is, it is playing out in Detroit in a different way. I mean, as Detroit gets this tremendous reinvestment in its core by a billionaire named Dan Gilbert, yep. who's basically rebuilding the whole core, the neighborhoods surrounding Detroit are like, what, what's happening to me? I'm becoming displaced. I don't like this. So the very spur of urban reinvestment that's needed to create jobs creates anxiety and resentment. But I, I call it winner-take-all urbanism. You know, we know we live in a winner-take-all economy, but, but winner-take-all urbanism. And Philadelphia may not be the biggest winner, but it's a big winner. Right. Uh, maybe London and New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles are the biggest winners, but one of the reasons Philadelphia has come back so powerfully, well, great knowledge institutions, Penn and Drexel and Bill, I could go all down the list. Yeah. A great urban neighborhoods and a streetscape and density, which is probably the best in the country. I mean, New York has great, Boston has great, but Philadelphia is spectacularly beautiful. But but the, the it's it's basically a suburb of New York, and it's not much of a less of a suburb of Washington D.C. It's on that Acela corridor, yeah. the, one, the fourth largest economy in the world. You know, the the Philadelphia, New York, Baltimore, Washington, Boston corridor. So all these factors make Philadelphia a winner. But when I say crisis of success, even the winners have these divides because what happens is the advantage third of Philadelphia, the advantage third of New Yorkers. The advantage thirds of San Francisco's can survive and thrive and buy real estate, but 66% of Philadelphians and their counterparts in other cities fall further and further behind. Uh, they can't buy in. They get pushed further afield, either into dis- dis- dilapidated urban neighborhoods or, or faltering suburban neighborhoods, and that creates this gaping divide in the absence of a middle class. So, yeah, we, we get a social and cultural and political pressure cooker, which results in 
in, in, in what we see in our country today. Now, one of the other things you talk about, and we're talking with uh, Richard Florida, his uh, book, The New Urban Crisis, uh, is out in bookstores and available online as, uh, as well right now. One of the things you talk about is infrastructure, and that has obviously kind of been a big talking point recently. That's you know, President Trump talks about uh, a $1 trillion infrastructure investment here in the United States. We see it here in the Northeast. Uh, I remember several years ago going to Houston and seeing a big uh, movement on infrastructure. It, it happens in, in various pieces. So infrastructure is something that a lot of people say is neglected. It, you know, We still have a long way to go. We're in the process of building it. But how is infrastructure playing this, this in this role to either help or hurt what we're seeing going forward? Well, the reason we have this great thriving northeastern corridor is infrastructure, great transit within most of our northeastern corridor cities, and an acela line that connects them. And it's, you know, that, that is why we have scaled that, met, that megalopolitan, that mega region to 50 million people, $2.5 trillion in economic output. It's one of the most powerful economic entities on the planet. Uh, it, it is connected, you know, all the way from Boston to Washington is a connected functional economic zone. But then you look at the Midwest, where there's Chicago and Detroit and Cleveland and Toronto, all disconnected, and, and they're not a, an economic zone. Yeah. So I think one of the things we need in this country is more, more investment in two kinds of infrastructure. We need better transit so that our people can move around our metros. And one of the things I point out in the book is once a metropolitan area reaches five and a half to six million people, that's like Atlanta, Miami, D.C., Boston, Dallas, Houston. You can not, now, don't get me wrong. I love cars. I love single-family homes. But once the metro hits that point, you can no longer grow simply on the car and the single-family home. You've got to invest in transit, and you've got to create density. And then if you want to create a functional economic zone like the mega region of Boston, Washington, Philadelphia, New York, you need high-speed rail. So one of the things that worries me, of course, is that we have a big backlash against those kinds of investments. So, But the, but the good side is, you know, in, in Florida, I live part of the year in Florida, the private sector has said, you know, okay, the government doesn't want to do this. The governor turned back the money. We're going to do it because we can make a profit off it. Right. So I think I think the message is we should stop subsidizing single-family homes through the mortgage interest tax deduction, and we should stop subsidizing road construction, and we should just have a level playing field. And once we have a level playing field, then we should let market actors, combined with local governments and metropolitan transit authorities, make the investments they need to back. But right now we are subsidizing, you know, we're subsidizing roads and single-family homes over the transit and density that many of our places require. Well, and and the other piece to that is the fact that uh, here in Philadelphia, and I think Boston as well, and to a degree New York, uh, the roadways that are there, it's not like you can expand them. You know, to make them more more capable for more vehicles. I mean, here in Philadelphia, the Schuylkill Expressway is is you know it's shoehorned in in a lot of locations where you can only have three lanes. You can't get a fourth lane just because it was built 50, 60, 70 years ago, and people didn't think we we're going to need you know a four lane highway running right through Philadelphia. You know, it's really interesting to me now. You know, just when I fly into an airport. Um, it takes me longer to get from the airport in Toronto to where I need to go. It takes me longer to get from the airport in Atlanta, longer to get from the airport in, in Chicago. But when I fly into New York, I get to the air, from the airport to downtown pretty quickly. And the reason is there aren't a lot of people driving their own private car. Right. Um, it, it, they have enough transit, and there's enough ways to get into the city that not everyone has to drive. Right. So I, I think that we just have to – and the other thing you know, that economists have been saying for years, price the god darn road. 
you know, if, if yeah. I want to drive, make me pay for it. You know, if somebody has to take transit, they pay. Yep. If I want to take a, a cell train, I pay. If I want to get on a plane, I pay. But if I get in a car, da 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 drive down the road, it's all free goods. So just make us pay, and we have the technology. And, and once we pay to use the roads, we can make a more informed choice. Do I want to pay that every day, or do I want to live closer? Do I want to live near a transit line? So, so I think that's right, and I think you're right. We've just reached the limits in, in cities and metropolitan areas like Philadelphia, like Atlanta, like Dallas, like Toronto, the limits of this car-oriented model. Um, you know, one story I like to tell is when my dad, my dad worked in a factory, and we lived in Newark, and they moved like 15 minutes away to a, to a working-class suburb called North Arlington. My right. dad drove his car to work every day. It took 15 minutes. Now, he, now you can't drive down that highway because there's so many more people living in New Jersey. Yeah. So what worked in my dad's era no longer works in my era. Well, what do you think is going to be the the, the, the scenario to play out in a lot of these cities in the next decade moving forward? Because a, a lot of the millennials that have moved into cities over uh, the, the last decade, a lot of them have said, OK, you know, the city is my home. This is where I want to raise my kids. But there will be a portion of them that will want to move yep. back out to the suburbs and, you know, have the, the four bedroom house, the, the two car garage, that, that type of thing. And so it, it almost feels like it will be kind of a replacement scenario where some of them will move out and, and the next generation, Gen Z, will move right in. So the way I like to think about it is this sort. My, my colleague Bill Bishop called the big sort. Um, and, and in the book, I call it a patchwork. It's not like all Americans want to live in cities. It's not like all Americans want to live in suburbs. It's not like all Americans want to live in rural areas. Some of us want an urban thing, especially when we're young yeah. or when the kids have gone off to school. Uh, many of us prefer suburbs when the kids are young. In fact, the majority of Americans still live in suburbs. Some of us want to live on the ex-urban fringe and have more space. Some of us want to live in a blue city where we pay more money for more knowledge institutions and great universities and better transit. Some of us want to save our money and move to the Sun Belt and live in a red area um, where, where we don't pay so much taxes. The book says because our country is so divided, you know, we're basically a country divided in half. Uh, and, we, and we're a big country with lots of cities and metro areas and lots of different kinds of suburbs. The only way around this is to take power out of Washington. You know, we have these every eight-year, four- to eight-year cycles of a national electoral civil war yeah. uh, where we get depressed if our person doesn't win. Uh, and we go you know, all this anxiety and national vetting, and it's all over the news. Why don't we just take power out of Washington? Why don't we give it back to our cities and states and say, look, if you want to live in a suburb, that's great. Live there. Vote with your feet. If you want to go in an urban area and pay more taxes, live there. Vote with your feet. If you want to live in a blue kind of community and pay more taxes, you do that. If you want to live in red. And, and you know, I, I think there's a growing momentum on the left and right in America but that's the only way to make our country great, to rebuild our economy, because we're so different. And it's the only way to heal our differences is to take the power out of Washington and move it to the states and locales. And, and hopefully, uh, with this book and the, and the ongoing conversation, we can spur that movement over the course of the next four to eight years. The, the interesting piece to it, and, and Richard Florida is our guest, his uh, book, the, Urban, uh, the New Urban Crisis, is out right now. You can uh, join in at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. It's interesting because... Uh, we're at a time here in Philadelphia and obviously a lot of, of cities uh, around the country. Here in Philadelphia, we have a, a school district that is struggling financially. Uh, you know, uh, they they recently had to close the school down. You know, there are many issues where that's concerned. We also have a city that is uh, dealing with uh, a soda tax 
You know, we that that mm-hmm. extra taxation is kind of in there as a city. Yet we also have a city here in Philadelphia that decided that it would be a great thing to host an NFL draft. You know, so I mean, part of the, a lot of this is the people and what they can do, but also a lot of this is what the government and what 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 the structure of our cities needs to really do. And I think the big, you know, it's interesting, even with the new urban crisis, the big success story of the past decade has been the comeback of the Philadelphia's and Detroit's and Cleveland's, never mind the New York's and San Francisco. So that's happened. And that's happened when those cities were down and out. Somehow when those cities were down and out, they figured out a way to muster enough local will and private investment to do it. Federal government. And federal government's not going to come to our rescue for this ever again. And not just Trump. It's never. And you know what? Uh, Johnson tried the Great Society. Carter had his thing. Clinton, Obama. There was not that much in the way of a federal urban policy anyway. Yeah. So cities and communities have done this on their own. They've built themselves. Uh, and the other thing, I, I, I think we just have to accelerate that. So my thought is, here's this. Maybe you think it's crazy. Um, and I only say this because the Democrats are now the minority. They don't have the White House. If the Republicans were in the minority, they could do it. Um, Instead of nominating your typical senator or congressman or national political figure, the Democrats nominate a great mayor, your, your former mayor, Michael Nutter, John Hickenlooper, in the, the governor of Colorado, former mayor of Denver, who's very nonpartisan, but yeah. happened, I think happened to be a Democrat. And he says, you know, I'm going to run on a ticket of bringing power back to you. We, we hear that you don't like national government. We hear that you're dissatisfied with Washington and the Congress. And as my running mate, I'm going to pick my friend, a Republican mayor. I'll pick one out of the hat. Mick Cornett, the mayor of Oklahoma City, who happens to be a Republican chairman of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Right. Together, we are going to turn power back to you. We're going to take power out of Washington. We're going to give you back the revenues that you pay, that right. you pay and transfer to us in the income tax. We're going to give you back the revenues to build your community, deal with the new urban crisis, invest in your schools. If you want roads, build roads. If you want transit, build transit. You figure it out. Yeah. And I think that's the conversation we need to have because we have this lopsided federal system that may have made sense when FDR was president or Kennedy was president, no longer makes sense for the economy, this geographically varied, you know, kind of complex patchwork economy we have now. We're joined by Richard Florida. The book is The New Urban Crisis. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So then what do you see as the – I mean, I I would think part of this may very well be, and you kind of uh, uh, mentioned it, uh, is more public-private partnerships on a variety of different fronts. Well, I think this is the area where America has really excelled. You don't see this in other countries. Uh, First of all, you don't see the, the local initiative. Even though our cities are hamstrung and don't keep, you know, support, we know cities like Philadelphia and New York and Boston just give a whole bunch of money to the federal government. The federal government redistributes to other places. Right. So, so, but, but our public-private partnerships have been a fantastic success story. You know, I lived in Pittsburgh for nearly 20 years, a city that was down on its knees. And what kept that city going was the investment. Not a, local government was broke. Yep. It was the private philanthropy, the foundations, it was local corporations, and it was community neighborhood development entities yep. that pooled resources and rebuilt and stabilized neighborhoods. And and that's what we're, we're talking before. That's what's building these high-speed rail lanes, uh, uh, lines in places like Florida. It's not the government. It's a public-private partnership led by the private sector. And I think one of the reasons I'm, I'm guarded, I'd say in this book, I used to be a total rosy-eyed. Uh, you know, rose-tinted glasses optimist. Now I'm guardedly optimistic. Yeah. Our corporations now depend on our cities. They are moving back, many of them from the suburban office park, the, the so-called Nerdistan, you know, out there in the suburban yeah. area. Yeah. 
They're moving back to the cities. They need our cities to work. They need transit to get their people to work. They need rail to get around. So corporations are going to have to ante up. And in partnership with local government, we can do a lot. And I think that's the place we have to get there. And, and the other reason I'm optimistic is that this is cuts across the left-right divide. You have people like the political theorist Benjamin Barber writing in The Nation on the left saying we need to empower our cities. You have people like Yuval Levin, who's a conservative, writing in the Conservative National Review, we need to empower our cities. So, so in a way, it's, it's a way that's unifying. It's the one thread that's unifying our country. Am I, am I guarded? Yes, I'm cautiously optimistic. But we have to start the conversation now and begin to steer our country in this direction. Great book, Richard. It's it's phenomenal read. Thank you very much for giving us your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, and uh, I hope to be talking to you again soon. Thank you. All the best. Richard Florida. The book is The New Urban Crisis. As I mentioned, it is available in bookstores and available online right now. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.